Father, thank you this morning, this evening. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to gather. Thank you even for the sunshine that you brought today. And We know that every day is a new day and it's a good day because it's the day that you've given us. It's the day that you've made. But thank you for that sunshine. It's nice to see things dry out a little bit and see some of the, even my kids outside enjoying that nicer weather. So thank you for that. Thank you for this building and your word and the opportunity we have to look into it. Thank you that you have revealed your truth to us with the expectation and even the privilege of knowing that it's, it's, we can know your truth, that you didn't hide it from us. You revealed it to you through your only written word and you communicated it in, in a way that could be understood, especially as enlightened and illuminated through the power of your spirit and the teaching ministry even of the spirit of God. Thank you that we have it, but pray that we wouldn't take it for granted and we would not just avoid it, but that we would allow that to renew our minds instead of just always having our minds bombarded with what the world says is true and important, which we know is not. We know that that is a tool of the enemy to distract us from the things that do matter. So pray that we would have just even heart's desires to spend time in your word and to know more about you and that it would be a priority in our lives that we could pass along that enthusiasm for your word to those that come behind us, our children and others that we have influence influence on in our lives like our grandchildren and other young people around us, even one another, that that enthusiasm for your word could be contagious, that it could spread like wildfire, that we would spend our times meditating and discussing and talking and fellowshipping around your word instead of some of the things that we so often are tempted to spend our time speaking about. Thank you again for your love. Pray for the young people in Truth For Youth that you keep them safe and that they would learn something about you so that they could taste and see that you're good, that they could at a young age develop a personal relationship with you and that they would want to include you in their lives and not distance themselves from you or exclude you. Thank you again for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as has been the case for the last couple of Wednesday nights, the title of Tonight's sermon is A Holy and Peculiar People, but as exciting as this is going to sound, we're now on part three. So A Holy and Peculiar People, part three. We keep moving through this section in the second address or speech or sermon, however you want to label it, that Moses has for the nation of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And in the second speech or the second address that he has to the nation, he spends these chapters 12 through roughly 26 going through some very specific instructions about a set-apart or holy life and how the lifestyle or the decisions or the actions or the directions for the nation would in fact keep them apart from and peculiar from and distinct from the nations around them as a representation of this separate special holy calling that God had for them corporately to be light bearers for him. So we have mentioned those two words, holy and peculiar, a couple of different times, but we're just talking about this idea of being set apart or distinct from the world around them. And we talked about, although these two adjectives are used for the nation of Israel, that those are adjectives that should describe any light bearer, including those in the church age that have been given the same essential mission, which is the mission of pointing people to who God is and his provision for man's sinfulness. Now, the detail in that message or the specifics of that message as there has been more progressive revelation given to mankind have changed slightly but it's the same basic message and to be effective at doing that God in his wisdom and his knowledge and his understanding he determined that that mission could be best accomplished by not fitting in with the world around us, and same was true with the nation of Israel, but being distinct from and set apart from them and to be identified instead with God's righteousness and God's mission and God's, God's goodness and God's love. Now that was enumerated or laid out with a bunch of different specifics. And we've looked at a bunch of them as we've gone through roughly eight, well, 10 of these chapters counting the two, 12 and 13 that we did separately. But then we've done kind of overview style, eight chapters with 
five more remaining here that Lord willing will go through tonight. So in the specific context that we're going through, Moses, or God through Moses, is letting the nation know, reminding them of things they've already been told, already been taught. Sometimes he's expanding on what was already taught, but these different ways that the nation would be distinct from and separated from the nation's around them. Now, I have said this twice. I'm going to say it again here tonight. There's a couple of things that we, we have to remember. One is that although the idea that one who is a light bearer for God would be set apart from the world around them, that principle, that general principle, that's a trans-dispensational principle. That's a principle that applies to every messenger or light for God no matter what point in the Bible you were to look at that they would be distinct from and set apart from the world around them, that the world could look to them and they could see a difference. They could see that something was different about that person who was a reflection of God's goodness, God's character, God's righteousness, God's holiness, and other attributes of God, God's love that you could go through. So that is an overarching transdispensational principle, but be careful not to take some of these specific instructions and try to find some specific application from the Mosaic law or the Levitical law to our day-to-day life. We're not, we're not under this, the law, or these specifics. Now, they were given for a similar purpose, but as I seek to make applications, these are not direct ap- applications. These are just ways where we're making indirect applications to our lives from some of the principles and truths that we see that could be brought out from the specifics of the Mosaic Law. The second thing is that we are not God. And so God had a specific intention behind the various instructions and regulations, commandments, depending on how you would label them, that he had for the nation. Now, we're not going to understand what he meant by all of them, how that was going to make the nation distinct, how that was going to represent his holiness, how that was going to set them apart, what his reasons and rationale were for all of it. And so you'll see even tonight, if you're going to go back and study these chapters, chapter 22 through 26, with a fine-tooth comb, if you're going to look at it more closely, and I would encourage you to go ahead and do that, but you're going to see that I've glossed over some stuff simply because I don't understand exactly what God was trying to do. And so I'm not going to even try to give you an explanation that is beyond the scope of even my understanding. And so that's a caveat in all this. So last week we looked at chapters 18 through 21. This week we're going to pick up with chapter 22. Now before we do that, I kind of see one of the bookends to this, although it comes two chapters into this section, I kind of see chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 as sort of one of the bookends. God is telling them in this section through Moses of the address that I want you to be a holy and peculiar people. I want you to be set apart and distinct. And so we saw these statements of fact in chapter 14 verses 1 and 2. You are the children of the Lord your God. Remember that everything about the life of faith or a walk of faith. Every aspect of that ultimately is tied to your identity and your identity as a son of God, a child of God, uh, a man and woman of faith as directed by God, as provided for by God, having put your confidence in God's provision to meet your need. And so that's a fact. You are the children of the Lord your God. Now that's true corporately of the nation of Israel. That's true individually, though, of every man or woman of faith, the, you know, the Bible calls the nation of Israel God's special chosen people. So in that sense, he has unique relationship with them, just like he has a unique relationship even with those that are part of the church age like you and I. But you are the children of the Lord your God. Now that's only brought about, no matter what period of time you're talking about, that's only brought about or wrought as a byproduct of faith in God and his provision for man's sinfulness. Now, the second statement was, you are a holy people. Not you. Positionally, you are a holy people. Positionally, you are God's children. So we're talking about the practical application of these fixed realities. The third one was, the Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people. And so those three things are fixed positional truths. There's nothing going to change those. What we're really talking about as you see these specific applications is, practically speaking, is that going to be true on a day-to-day basis as they appropriate God's instruction for their lives with an understanding and a recognition of God's 
knowledge of everything, his wisdom in everything, his goodness in everything, his love and compassion and mercy in everything that he instructs them about. And so this is a continuation of that. But this is Moses, you have to have sort of that framework behind these specific instructions that they are children, they are holy, they are chosen. And now he's going to focus on, he has been focusing on the specifics of that that will then create this contrast between the people of faith and the nations of the world or the nations of the world around them, that distinction. Now pick up in chapter 22. We're going to have to move today. I've barely gotten through four chapters the previous two times. And now I'll just shoot up a quick prayer. We're going to go for five chapters here tonight. Chapter 22, the first four verses I have labeled, look out for your brother. Look out for your brother. See, although the specifics here, if you are to read these quickly as I'm speaking, the specifics are focused on livestock. That's not the general principle. The general principle is look out for your brother. This is a specific application of love your neighbor as yourself. That's the takeaway that should be glean from those four verses. Verses, And you say, are you sure that this is God's will for me? Are you sure that that was the takeaway? And the answer is yes, I'm positive of that. In the New Testament, you want to make a specific application to yourself. It, it may not involve sheep and livestock. It may not involve your neighbor or your brother's ox. But it may involve looking out for your brother. So what do we take away from that? Well, Paul speaks to this point very clearly in at least a couple of passages that I'm aware of. You're probably familiar with them both too. But Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 say this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind do what? Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the general principle. Now it's applied to livestock here, but... Paul's applying it to people, which is the people behind the livestock. That was the focus that Moses was trying to bring to the surface too. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, he says, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And then you think, well, why would, why would Moses have to cover that here in the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy? Why does Paul have to cover that at least twice in the New Testament? Well, because by nature, your flesh doesn't do that by default. You don't accidentally have a natural man response that would prefer or defer to the best interests of somebody else over yourself. You see in that same chapter, that second chapter of Philippians, Paul went on in the 20 and 21st verses to say, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Now, why was that true that he lacked the laborers to carry on the mission that God had put in front of him? Those that would come alongside of him, those that would minister with him in that endeavor to further the gospel. Well, why was that? He says, for, because the reason I'm lacking those workers is all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now, if that's true on a macro level, it's certainly true on a micro level when you're talking about that application to seeking what and desiring what is best for the one another's that God has put in your life. That's no different with the men of men and women of faith in Moses' day as it was in Paul's day as it is in our day. The Spirit of God would direct when your eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ would direct you to want to serve others with a spirit of sacrifice and selflessness that would promote their best interest over your own. That's what agape love is in action. What it is by definition is this affection, this deep affection that you would have for another believer. But the application of that is in the sacrificial selfless ministry that you would have as the Spirit of God would work through you into the lives of others. Again, not produced in your flesh, not produced mechanically, not produced artificially, but produced as a result of God working in and through you. Verse 5 of chapter 22, I have labeled as embrace God's design. And this is actually a verse about cross-dressing. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. 
You would call this, or you could label this, deviant behavior. To deviate, though, simply means to depart from an established course. See, God established a desired course for the lives of his children. God created the world with order. Nothing is as basic to that order as gender, and that's why it's brought out here. You see that from the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It wasn't something that was unspecific. It was something that was very specific, that there would be gender established in the sense of men and women. See, the natural tendency, though, when you talk about God establishing order, this just happens to be one of many examples that you could say where God laid something out as his plan, laid something out as his natural order of doing things. But the natural tendency of every man is to reject that direction, the direction that God puts in front of us, and to do his own thing. So even in our day, you think about, and I won't name names, but somebody mentioned this illustration to me just, just today. We have a way of looking at the world in the sense of seeing different deviations from God's standard as being bigger towers than others. It'd be looking like at a city landscape and saying, that building is this high, but that building is this high. Each one of those, though, as God looks down at it, if you were to take an aerial view of all of those buildings, you would see that the footprint that you would see from above is exactly the same regardless of the building. We, in our natural mind, we have a way of singling out and focusing on certain deviations from God's plan and saying that that represents something that is much, much worse than some other deviation from God's plan. But yet the problem that all men face is that the natural tendency is always to do your own thing and to deviate from the plan that God has put in front of you. Well, you see it in the sense of this base level uh, when it comes to gender itself. It's something that Moses is laying out here, but it's happening, of course, in our day too, where you attack just the base level of God's order, which is male and female, the gender of men and women. See, you have this unconscious, uh, it's often unconscious and based on general, on genuine confusion. So when this happens, where you have this confusion or this deviation from the normal standard, that is often not something that's even done intentionally, though sometimes it is. Often it is the result of unconscious thought. Sometimes it's the result of genuine confusion, regardless of one's position on the exact source of that confusion. You could have many different people have different opinions about what is the source of that confusion. Now, the world is full, filled with confusion. Our minds are filled with confusion. What is the exact source of this? You can tie it all back to the curse of sin, the effects of sin, the effects of the sin nature in one way, shape, or form. Now, has that affected us at a molecular level? Is that a purely external level? Is that an internal level? Is that an emotional level? Is that a psychological level? Is that a physiological level? And you could say, depending on what you're talking about, it could be any of those different things. And there's different opinions about what is causing these breakdowns, what part of the sin curse is causing these confusions? What part of this is causing these problems that people face with deviating from God's established course? But ultimately, it all ties back to, in one shape or form, the way that sin has plagued the world and everything in it since the fall of man. Jeremiah 3.25 says, Let us lie down in our shame. And let our confusion cover us. For we have sinned against Jehovah our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even until this day. And we have not obeyed the voice of Jehovah our God. You see, confusion ultimately is sourced from the rejection of God's order, the rejection of God's direction, from the curse of sin. And that confusion has permeated the thinking of every man, woman, and child. Now it manifests itself in a number of different ways, one of which is laid out here in this verse. You see, everyone is susceptible, though, to identity confusion. 
You think about some aspects of that identity confusion. Here we're talking about transgenderism. We're talking about the idea of a man acting as a woman or a woman acting as a man, cross-dressing specifically. I guess it doesn't even specifically say transgenderism, just focusing on cross-dressing specifically. But it's an issue that oftentimes is the byproduct of confusion. It's an issue of your identity isn't clear to you. And James 4.4, when you're talking about singling out this deviation from God's plan or God's purpose or God's direction for your your life. We have a tendency to look at certain things that we're not currently struggling with and to say that is appalling, that is detestable, but God, we have a way of whitewashing the areas of deviation from God's plan in our own lives that we're being affected by. So we have a way of looking at those other buildings around us. We see our building as a very small building. We see those as very large in terms of their offensiveness to God, but God looks down at it and he says, I see all of that as equally a problem in terms of that it manifests itself or it's a manifestation of a deviation from my plan. Now what are you really talking about? James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you're thinking about some of these ways that that confusion reveals itself, manifests itself in believers' lives. Very, there's very few instances where you would say this deviation that is specific to this, this verse, that that is very common in our immediate circles. But there's plenty of other examples that you could say, this is friendship with the world, it's worldly thinking, it's being influenced by the world. It's then, because of that thinking, it's manifesting itself as a deviation from God's program, God's will and direction for man's life. And so ultimately, it's kind of a catch-all when you look at this Deviation in terms of friendship with the world. See, nobody really avoids confusion of one type or another. We're all deceived about things in many different ways in our lives. So then the question becomes, how do you respond to that? Well, for starters, we have to not fall into this trap where we say to stand or to speak truth represents fear, or it represents hatred for somebody. You see, to graciously disagree with someone based on the word of God is not hate when it is done in love. So one of the things that I've seen plaguing Christianity or the the way that the world attacks Christianity is this mentality that you cannot disagree with somebody or point them to what God's standards really say without being labeled as somebody who is fearful of that individual or somebody who hates that individual. Standing for the truth when it's done in love is not hate. It's not fear of that individual. Rick Warren, who I wouldn't normally even name his name per se, I, wouldn't, I don't name a lot of names. I try to avoid it because I, I certainly wouldn't necessarily be in a position to advocate for everything he believes or teaches. But he had this quote, and I attribute it to him because it's his quote. But it says this, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone is to agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And I think, isn't that so true? While our focus is always shining the light on Jesus, because our focus is always supposed to be on what we're for, to speak about what we're for. It doesn't mean that we can never mention or ever take a stand against what we're against or mention what we're against. But if what we're against ends up being our drumbeat instead of what we're for, that's a problem too. But just to take a stand against something or just to identify this behavior, this thinking, this attitude, this manifestation of the flesh, this manifestation of the curse of sin, this is incompatible with God's standards of what are right. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But as we speak that truth, let's do it in love. And let's remember, though, let's not get sucked into this idea that we have to be ashamed of standing for what is right or speaking 
what is right. But can we do it in love? Yes, we can. But it doesn't. The world has a way of anytime somebody disagrees with the popular viewpoint and transgenderism, transgender issues, homosexuality, a number of different things like that. The list could go on. But the world has taken a position that you label anyone who would disagree with your viewpoint about that as somebody who is speaking hate or somebody who is phobic. They're phobic of that. But that's nonsense. You don't have to be afraid of something or hate something to say, I disagree with that because it's in violation of what God has expressed as his very word and his very plan for mankind. And so I want to come alongside of you I want to embrace you in love, to give you some direction, to point you back to if you're struggling with your identity, your identity can be found in who you are as God's child. I want to get to that in a second. So why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that you can't even take a stand about something like this without being labeled a bigot or somebody who's hateful or somebody who is phobic? Why is that such a big deal? Well, if Satan can attack and undermine the most basic elements of God's creative order, then every other basic truth is subject to erosion or erasure too. Let me say that again. If Satan can undermine and attack the most basic elements of God's creative order found in the very first chapter of Genesis about male and female and having created people that way, then every other basic truth is subject to erosion or erasure too. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 really speaks to the underlying issue. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, reference to Satan, which the Lord God had made. Now what has his messaging been since the very beginning? And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So that's really the question being highlighted. Has God indeed said? To undermine the standards and the plan that God himself, the design that God himself has set in place. Now, if you can do that and you can make everything relative and you can say there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute plan that God has set in place, now everything is subject to every man does what's right in his own eyes. There is no standard anymore. And that's the danger of relativism. That's the danger of saying everybody determines their own truth. If, if even the basic biological decisions are now determined by yourself, you decide that. Now we have nothing that we can go to and say, this represents God's absolute truth, and that's why it's a problem. Now what is the solution, though, to confusion? This happens, again, to be very specific confusion that's in view here. But I'm talking about now, more generically, any confusion about God's plan, about God's direction for the lives of his children. Any confusion that you might have about that. And again, I've already stated, we're all confused to some extent. Confused to the, about priorities, confused about what matters most, confused about the things that we have our allegiance to, the things that we are going to promote and proclaim. There's confusion there about the correct order of things. There's confusion about basic principles like even the, pri- the preeminence that God himself should have in our lives. And then it trickles down to everything after that. God's instructions for the home. God's instructions about marriage. God's instructions about children. God's instructions about the order in the local church. Now it just trickles all the way down from there where there's confusion based on not adhering to God's established standard. So what is the solution to confusion though? Well, clarity Clarity is the solution to confusion. It's the exact opposite of confusion. So God, give me clarity. Now, where do I find clarity when tackling these very difficult things that are very, very hard, especially when they hit close to home? The closer they hit the home, the harder they are. What's the solution? Well, clarity, where does that clarity come from? It comes from God's truth. Trusting God to direct you in his way through or despite your confusion. So for the one who's confused, which we've already established is every person, but even the one who's confused about their gender identity, what is the solution for that person? To find their truth, to find their clarity from their position or their identity as God's child. Our job isn't to 
rub their confusion in their face. Our job is to put Jesus front and center and his love and his compassion and his provision for their need. You know, you might be struggling with who you are. Many young people are struggling with who they are. But the who they are and what they need to be reminded of is that first and foremost, they're very dear and important to God. And if they're believers, like many of our many young people are believers, especially in our church, then to point them to the blessings, the provision that they have from God, God's plan for their life, how much they matter to Him, where they can find their identity when they're seeking to find their identity in so many other places filled with the world's confusion. When it comes to identity struggles specifically, finding your identity as God's child, what do you say about me? Not what do I feel about myself. What does the world say about me? What do you say about me? In Psalm 139, 14 and 15, in terms of what the Word of God says about His children, it says this, 139, 14 and 15 of Psalms. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, does that mean that I'm not affected by the curse of sin? That there's no problems with my thinking? There's no problems even with my psychology? My physiologically? Are people, do people have problems as a result of sin? Yeah, they do. We can argue about what is the exact manifestation of that? When is that true? When is that not true? But the issue is that there's problems that are brought about by sin, but despite that, God still looks at you in terms of your identity and says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows well. Now how about this? My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, speaking of the mother's womb, and skillfully wrought, created, in the lowest parts of the earth. It's a metaphor. It's poetry referencing the birth process, being created by God as a fearfully and wonderfully made person. So what does God think of you? Find your identity in that. Find your identity in the fact that although we are living in a sin-cursed world and we have to deal with how that affects our thinking, how that has affected the human condition, how that has affected the human body, we have to deal with that. But what's the solution? We don't deal with that by looking at the world or looking to the world for guidance. We don't find our identity in what others have to say about us or think about us. We find our identity in what God thinks about us and we find our truth in what God says is true, not what the world says is true. Well, that's a lot on one single verse. You're wondering, how do we get through five chapters? (laughs) Next up, miscellaneous instructions. You're going to find there's a lot of miscellaneous instructions in these chapters. Verses 6 through 7, there's practical instructions that are given to avoid injury to the ecosystem, the food supply, and even people. So there's fascinating chapters in the sense of what God chooses to include in all of this and what he doesn't touch on. But he touches on even things about allowing nature to Uh, continue so that you don't take away too much of the food supply by killing too many of the animals. Leave the mother alive so that they can make more food. And then the second thing is put a fence around. This is like the first OSHA. This is the first building code I've come across in the Bible. Put a fence around your roof if you're going to build a flat roof so that people don't fall off. So, I don't know, when you talk about governmental regulation of building... Here you have some civil law given to the nation of Israel about building even a home and putting a fence around the roof. Why? God cares for nature. God cares that there would be a food supply available to the nation when they come into the land. And God cares about people. Even something as small and inconsequential as them falling off of a roof. Fascinating. Now, illustrations are effective teaching tools is chapter 22, 8 through 12. And there's these illustrations that are given to help with this concept that the people are supposed to be set apart. So these are symbolic reminders primarily for the nation of Israel not to mix with the world, but it takes the form of some various things like don't allow the seeds from one kind of a plant to blow into your vineyard. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey that are unequally yoked together. 
Very interesting that that's something that's even referred to in the New Testament in terms of our human relationships. Don't try to mismatch your human relationship, one person of faith, one person not of faith. Don't wear even a garment that has different types of fabric in it, wool and linen that are mixed together. Now, I see the symbolism there. I can't tell you if God had more in mind with those things. That's above above my pay grade, but illustrations are effective teaching tools. What's the effective message there? Don't intermingle or mix this all together. Now, the next 17 verses from chapter 22, 13 through verse 30 talk about sexual purity and the sanctity of marriage. Yes, you're right. There's some stuff in here that we sift through and we sort through. Now, again, these aren't specific applications that we're going to make directly to our own circumstances, but it is commonplace in the Old Testament to find the Lord's covenant with Israel compared to the marriage relationship between husband and wife. So you have the following sections are to be understood against that theological backdrop. So there's very obvious practical and immediate illustrations and the effects that those would have on a marriage relationship and family. So that is given there too. But the underlying principle is to remain faithful to the Lord. And so then there's, you think about some of the ways that Satan is attacking believers. He's doing that by appealing to the flesh. And nobody is immune from this. The fact of the matter is that humans are sexual creatures and applying that in a way that is different from or contrary to God's plan and his design creates significant problems. And so what you're really coming down to as you're looking at some of those examples, the first section kind of references sexual purity before marriage. The second section references sexual relationships that are improper during marriage. And the third section focuses on the seriousness even of something like sexual assault. And I'm not going to get into all that detail. You can read it for yourself. Some of it is a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around, but those are the three sort of categories of it. And the question is really this, though. It's just another example, though, of God having a plan for what is best that is by default rejected by the natural man. The natural man individually and then society collectively. God says this is what would be best. And the question that's being asked by man singularly and collectively is, does God really know best? Has God indeed said? That's what we're saying when it comes to these matters, but frankly, you don't have to get into the minutia of even sexual purity or the sanctity of marriage. You don't even have to get into that specific application to say, as a general rule, does God know best? Has God really said? When God gave direction and instruction as it related to these things, can we take it to the bank? Can we believe that God knows what is best for us? And you think about the temptation is, of course, always there. It's always in front of people in a crooked and perverse world. That's what Paul described the world that he was living in. That was the world that the nation was living in, where sexual immorality was all around these nations. It it defined these nations in many ways. And that's true in our society as well. So what is God's solution to it, at least on the, fr- on the front end. What's the solution? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Uh, don't walk away from it. Turn and run away from it. Run with haste away from it because it's such a dangerous trap. Romans 13.14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the solution. If I'm walking by means of or the direction of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God isn't going to direct me into this type of thing that is inconsistent with God's plan, that is inconsistent with God saying, I do know what's best for you. That is not my will for your life. The Spirit of God would never lead you into that place. So it's only when we're living life apart from him, when our thinking is being directed by another source, usually the world around us, that that becomes a problem. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of putting on the clothes and the thinking that is associated with who you were in Adam, put on the new man, the new nature. That The Spirit of God, let the Spirit of God direct your life. And then what does it say? And make no occasion or provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Some of it comes down to common sense. Don't set yourself up for failure. 
Don't put yourself in a place where you're prone to making those types of errors and, and or repeating them. Now, what about the back end? Just like all sin, no exceptions, all sin, does it happen? Yes. We live in a sin-cursed world. We have a sin nature. We're not perfect yet. We're not glorified yet. We haven't been given freedom from the very presence of sin, though we've been given the ability to experience practical victory over sin in our lives. But when we're not walking by faith, when we're walking by sight, that isn't true. So when it happens, what's the solution? On the back end, it's to change your thinking. Reestablish intimate fellowship with God. Agree with God. Say the same thing as Him. Then get your eyes back on Him. That's a shorter way of saying that. Then seek restoration with those that are affected. Our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects other people around us. And then move forward. You can't be looking back. You've got to be moving forward. You can't wallow in it. You can't dwell on it. Got to move forward. Now, separation is necessary at times is this next section, chapter 23 we're on now. Verses 1 through 8 talks about certain circumstances where there has to be a distinction made that includes separation from certain aspects of society. Now, there's no direct application here that I can find either in our, our lives. The assembly that is talked about here refers to the formal gathering of the Lord's people as a community at festival occasions and other times of public worship. This doesn't involve just being a part of the community in general. It, it involves these specific formal gatherings for worship. But the underlying principle, even though I can't necessarily make sense of all of these examples and I don't know, I don't know what the point is that's being made with all of them, most of them are associated with sinfulness. They're associated with pagan uh, rituals or customs, especially verse 1. Uh, verse, verse 2 is, is talking about the uh, implication of that sinfulness on, on people in real, real circumstances and real uh, relationships. But I don't, I don't understand it fully, but I would say this. The principle is that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. God is trying to say that there's permanent consequences that are associated with sinfulness that we cannot dabble in the world or associate with the world and, re and retain that purity or that set apart standard that he wants for his children. Now, we are in the world, though. We're, we're affected by some of these things, but we're not to take on those customs or allow those things to affect us. But the focus is on holiness and purity. And like I said, some aspects of this are easier to understand than others. I'll put this in the category of I don't fully understand it, especially verse 2. Now chapter 23, 9 through 14, keep your camp clean. Keep your camp clean. That's just common sense. The underlying theme, again, continues to be holiness and purity, but there's these very specific applications just like don't turn your camp into an outhouse. So pretty direct, pretty straightforward, pretty practical. But there continues to be aspects that are both symbolic and then I think there's a greater part or at least an equal part that is just purely practical. See, holiness is identified with cleanliness at different places throughout the Bible. And many aspects of ceremonial cleanliness are in view when it comes to the Mosaic Law. This idea of that worship should be accompanied with a clean heart and also then physically a clean, a clean body. And certain things were incompatible then with worship. And it was a picture, though, of that heart problem or a heart that was unclean. Now we have a whole bunch more miscellaneous Instructions, again, the primary focus of these various instructions from verses 15 through 25. There's a lot of very random instructions and they focus on different aspects of holiness or being set apart because most of these instructions all involve, all involve advice from God that is contrary to what the world around the nation of Israel would have done. Would have done. So the first part is a fugitive's a fugitive slave was not to be handed over to his master, but was to be given asylum and the freedom to go anywhere he desired within the domain of Israel. The slaves in view here were not Israelites. They were people from other countries who came to seek sanctuary or refuge in Israel. And not returning them was not the norm 
in the surrounding areas. So here's an area of being distinct and set apart. That's verses 15 and 16. Then prostitution of any kind was prohibited, but especially prostitution as it related to religious practices. So nowhere other than Canaan was it more common for there to be practices that associated prostitution or sexual immorality with the worship to these false gods. And that's where the warning is focused on here in verses 17 and 18. Then verses 19 through 20, 20 we see treat your brother graciously. And the specific application of that, though, is don't charge interest on loans. But that really just comes down to, again, another illustration of this having this affection and concern for your brother where you would not just consider your own things but also consider their affairs then you have be a man of your word especially when it comes to the lord and we don't live in a time where we're encouraged to have vows but they're saying if you're going to make a vow or give your word to the lord that you're going to do something then take it seriously verses 21 and 23 i don't see necessarily a direct application there verses 24 and 25 be hospitable though to strangers and sojourners and foreigners that might be passing through and what's the specific application allow them to get food from your property as they're passing through so long as they don't seek to harvest the food and to bring a bag and a in a sickle and start harvesting your grain but to take what they need as they pass through your land Here's another illustration where God is saying, have this compassion for those that are foreign to your area, strangers and pilgrims who are passing through your land. Now these miscellaneous instructions, they continue right into the second half of chapter 25. So the whole chapter 24 and the first half of chapter 25 have all kinds of additional miscellaneous instructions. We're going to cover them very quickly here. Divorce should not be taken lightly is the first practical instruction or illustration. The purpose of this law seems to be to prevent frivolous divorce and to present divorce itself as contrary to the divine ideal for marriage. And Jesus actually talks about this specific passage in Matthew 19, 3 through 9, if you want to look at it a little bit more. Then he goes on in verse 5, marriage and family is important. This is a repeat of that instruction that said if you had just recently been married, you're not forced to go into a military conflict. Pastor Weef and I were actually just talking about this in passing before the service. You might die. And so the one who had just gotten married hadn't had a chance to create a family or start a family. That person was exempt from military service. Now, very different to some extent in those days where a lot of your property rights and your ability to uh, continue on, uh, even for that spouse or that recently married widow, were tied to having children and having that property interest and those things vest to, vest to the children. But marriage and family is important, is how I would put it. Again, making a very gen- general application to that specific illustration that isn't directed to us in the church age. Now, don't interfere with the ability to provide for oneself. Verse 6, don't interfere with that. So even if you have take a loan, don't take surety for that loan that would prevent somebody from working to provide for himself. And so what was happening was that people would take a loan and then they would, as a collateral against that loan, they would take the tools that that person had that were necessary to actually provide for himself and it would perpetu- perpetuate this cycle where that person would never catch up or be able to provide for themselves. So God is a very detail-oriented God. As you read through some of this yourself, you're going to see some of these very unique and specific applications that he makes about things that are all different from the way the world would handle things, the way the flesh would handle things. The flesh would take interest. The flesh would take collateral for the loan to protect oneself. The flesh wouldn't be the king of another country, wouldn't be concerned about whether you had time to start a family in your recent marriage, you'd be going off to war. There wouldn't be these provisions of God's grace, these pictures of God's grace, these pictures of God's making them distinct and set apart. You wouldn't see that. Kidnapping is a serious offense. The world around did, every man did what was right. Uh, Might makes right was the philosophy of the world around them. Kidnapping, taking slaves, taking people, no concern of the world 
around the nation of Israel, but the Bible says that's a very serious problem punishable by death. Now treat people and animals with respect and dignity. That takes up about a chapter straight, starting with 24, chapter 24, verse 8, through chapter 25, verse 4. There's, they're all focused on respect and dignity for people, and the last one is focused on respect and dignity for animals. But it starts with those who have leprosy. Put them under the care of the Levites. Don't just leave them to fend for themselves. Let the Levites give direction and instruction as to how to best keep that from spreading and for that person to even treat themselves. Maintain the integrity and dignity of the person who has been forced by circumstances to borrow from his neighbor. Don't make that a public spectacle. Keep it private. Don't go into their home in front of even maybe their kids and their relatives to make the arrangements. Let them come out of the home to make those arrangements in private. It's interesting some of the stuff that God put in here. It's an it's a idea, though, of dignity and respect and privacy. Then it goes on to say, treat hired workers poor that are poor, treat the poor and the needy fairly. Pay them their wages that are due to them. But in the world around the nation of Israel, if somebody couldn't stand up for themselves, they were taken advantage of on a regular basis. So this is just God's way of saying, you're different. You're lights for me. You should be set apart from the world around you. And some of this you can see obvious carryovers to our life in terms of just general principles of respect, general principles of allowing people to treat, treat people with grace, allowing them to even hold on to some of their dignity even as you have opportunity to, to do so. Then it goes on to say, don't punish the innocent with the guilty in verse 16. Everyone deserves justice, even strangers and pilgrims, even people who aren't citizens of your land. They all deserve justice, verses 17 and 18. That's what the Bible says. That's what God says will set them apart from the nations around them. Provide for the less fortunate. This has been repeated over and over in the book of Deuteronomy. No, you don't just worry about yourself. Provide for the stranger, the fatherless, and widows. This was incorporated into God's instruction to the nation of Israel. Why? Because people naturally don't give a rip about people who are less fortunate than themselves. You could see that even in the early church as those who were wealthy would come to the Lord's Supper and they would enjoy these lavish meals while their fellow brothers in Christ had nothing to eat. This isn't new. That's the natural tendency of man. And God's saying, no. Even the strangers, the orphans, the least of these, the widows, have some concern and compassion for them. It's so easy to justify not having that compassion, though. Punishment should fit the crime. There's limits to punishment. Mankind can get carried away with punishment. Where the, where the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Justice has to have some restraint to it or it gets carried away. And that's what verses 1 through 3 of chapter 25 talk about. Verse 4 of chapter 25, provide for your animals. This is about respect and dignity for the things God has created. Even animals are to be treated with dignity. Then you have take care of your family, including your in-laws, Verses 5 through 10. That's a very specific application that doesn't apply to our day, but in that society, if one was to be left as a widow without anyone to care for them, then that would create incredible hardship for that, for that individual. So there's a provision made there. Capacity to reproduce is to be protected. Very random thing in here. I do not want to try to even explain it, but verses 11 and 12. If you get into a fight with another man and your wife wants to get in there and help, she can't be kicking the guy in the, in the nuts, I guess, is what it says. You can't do that. And it's because apparently God says the capacity to reproduce is something to be cherished because God cares about life, human life, including even the ability to procreate. This is, in fact, the only example of a, a punishment of mutilation that you'll find her hand is to be cut off if that's what happens, where she attacks somebody's nether regions. I, I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the Bible. 
Treat people fairly. Don't be a cheat or a swindler. Some of this stuff is a lot easier, right? That's a tough one. This one's easy. Treat people fairly. Don't have a fake set of scales that you use to measure off grain and in, in your dealings, your business dealings with people. Be honorable. Don't be a cheat. Verses 11 through 16 of chapter 25. Now we get into rejection leads to destruction. Rejection of God leads to destruction. Verses 17 through 19, it talks about one particular, the Amaleks, the people of Amalek. Uh, they had rejected God. How did they do that specifically? Well, they rejected God's people. Very interesting. But it caused God's judgment to be upon them. Now, they were to be completely destroyed. I will mention that that never completely happened. Uh, King David came close, but he never fully did it either. And so here's another example of God knows best. The nation of Israel effectively determined in the application of that truth, effectively determined, no, God doesn't know best. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We don't need to heed his, his voice. We don't need to completely destroy them. And they never did. And we do that in our lives. You can look at anything to do with another person. Again, I mentioned that about the, the different building height and seeing their problem as so much worse than your problem. It's so much more juicy. It's so much more gossip-worthy to see that they're confused about that particular thing and just ignore my own, my own problems or hang-ups. We can do that with the nation of Israel. We do that with different characters in the Bible and we say, how could they? You know, the fact of the matter is we'd have turned tail and run much sooner than they did. In many instances, their faith was actually probably greater than ours. But that was not God's will for them. It's not God's will for you to respond to him in that way. We're not to respond to God with an attitude of God's instructions are useless. We're supposed to respond to God with an attitude that God knows best, his way is best, and when I let his spirit direct, he's going to lead me in the path of righteousness and he's going to lead me in the path that is straight and he's going to lead me in the direction that he wants me to go. That's the mentality we're supposed to have. Chapter 26 here, honoring the Lord through giving, remembering him, and worshiping him. So the first 15 verses of this chapter fall into that category. Moses reminds the nation that they honor the Lord. They show him respect through giving, remembering him, and worshiping. So all three parts are there here in this section of chapter 26. The first part is bringing the offering. So it focuses on bringing an offering to the Lord, to the central sanctuary, and that's the first four verses. Now note, they're supposed to bring the first fruits to the Lord as a way of honoring him. It's about honor and respect. So bring the first fruits, not the last fruits. And it's so often, we don't have to just be talking about time, treasure, talents, these different resources that God has put in our lives. So often, it's just whatever the leftovers, the crumbs that we save for the Lord. Our sense of honoring him is to fit in everything else possible in front of him. And if the stars align and there's anything left over as it relates to any of those facets, then, then the Lord can have that. And he says, your entire existence is to be tied up in your identity, who you are in me, this position that you have as my child, this life that you now live is supposed to be lived for the one who loved you and gave himself for you, that not just the last leftover crumbs of me, but I want you to have and use all of me for your honor and glory. And I don't want to, you know, the phrase all in for Jesus, I hesitate to even use it because it somewhat implies that the focus is on you. But the focus is on you to the extent that it requires a positive volitional response, a willingness and a yieldedness to say, Lord, here I am. I'm, your, I'm, he, I'm here, I'm a vessel in your hands. I know that you're the one who's going to do the using. You're the one who's going to do the working. You're the one who's going to do the empowering. You're the one who's going to do the directing. And you're the one who should get all the glory. But I'm willing. I'm not going to prevent you from doing that. I'm not just going to give you the crumbs. And there's a lot more you could get into with first fruits, but I, it's my 
certainly my take on it, that that's what's being pictured or symbolized there by the first fruits instead of the last fruits. Now, the second part is, remember what God has done. So when it comes to honoring the Lord, you honor him by not just giving your best of, to him in a sense of letting him have your best, but in the sense of remembering what he's done for you, remembering his provision, his preservation of you in the past, his past faithfulness. So verses 5 through 10a A part of this worship that they're told to have involves going through and mentally being intentional about remembering what God has done. How has he provided? How has he preserved you? What has he done to show himself to be faithful? Is that a regular part of your thinking? Meditating and reflecting on God's goodness, his provision, the way that he has preserved you, the way he's protected you, he's provided for you, he's guided you, how he's been faithful, his goodness, his other aspects of his character. I think it's amazing that that's a, ver- a directly stated aspect of how they're supposed to remember the Lord and honor the Lord. Now the last part is worship the Lord. Verses 10 through 11, bring that out. Worship the Lord. And that's to be done with rejoicing. It's not tedious. It's not to be done with a sense of obligation. I have to do this. I want to do this as I'm directed by the Lord, as I respond to his spirit working inside of me, as I keep my focus on him, as I think about and meditate about what he's done for me, what his plan is for me, how he's provided for me, how he's been faithful to me. Now I want to have that sense of rejoicing. It's in your presence is where Fullness of joy is found. But in your presence is a reference to a relationship. It's a relational God. As I spend time intimate, being intimate with him, that's cause for rejoicing. That's where the abundant life, that's where joy is found. Now, blessing is contingent on heading, heeding his direction. Blessing is contingent on heeding his direction. So we have this physical blessing we have this blessing associated with keeping his, this covenant in terms of the Mosaic covenant with him. Physical blessing. But the, the principle is true with spiritual blessing too. You're not going to be spiritual blessed, spiritually blessed. You're not going to thrive in your faith if you're not having this response to the Lord where you have this awe, respect, you're, have this, you're honoring him with your thinking, with the best best of you with this relationship with him with this rejoicing and worship with him with this remembrance of who he is and what he's done for you so that's verses 12 through 15 now the last three verses of the chapter a special and holy people a special and holy people this acts as a bookend of sorts to what we saw in chapter 14 this holy and peculiar people so this is Moses' second address. It's his second sermon to the people, and he's going to end with this conclusion about them being a special and holy people. What an appropriate way for him to end all of these chapters that we've been going through. It's a bookend to this long list of specifics or section of specifics as to how one would be unique, separate, distinct, set apart for God's use. And so that's how he summarizes or ends this second sermon because starting in chapter 27, it will be the third address or third sermon. So he comes back to the primary principle, the primary purpose behind it all. What was the primary purpose behind all of these specific reminders and instructions? So that they could be distinct, unique from the world around them, a set-apart and holy and special people. That was the purpose behind it all. So it acts as a summary of this covenant relationship, covenant agreement in in a way too. I've chosen you to be on this mission. This mission, not because there was anything special about you. There was nothing special about you. Not because there was anything unique about you. Not because you were seeking after me so much. Not because you were so righteous. None of that was true or distinct or unusual about this people at all but I've chosen you for a purpose to be a light into the darkness. And so you think about a holy and peculiar people, the light is supposed to be distinct from the darkness. Remember that I've said repeatedly, the light bearer should be distinct from the darkness as well. 
God intended for Israel to be distinct and set apart from the world around them. God's lights in the church age, you and I, are to be set apart too. So then, I guess the culmination of all this is Lord willing, these lessons have been a good reminder of that principle. I think do not seek to make a whole bunch of specific applications to your life from the Levitical law or the Mosaic law. But there's a bunch of general principles that we've seen in all of these chapters that we've gone through starting with chapter 12. But 14 through 26 here we covered a lot of ground and we did it quickly. But there was a lot of big picture principles that we took out of there. I hope some of them have sunk in. I, th- I hope some of them were encouraging and even convicting and challenging reminders. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we have had to look at all of these chapters of specifics that they could bog us down, but thank you that we were able to look at them with a mentality of what is the bigger picture? What is, how, how would this affect my life or apply to my life? Hopefully, We have seen that you have this intention for your messengers that they would be distinct from the world around them, that they would be set apart from the world around them, not for no purpose, but for the purpose that they would be effective at shining your light into the darkness and illuminating the darkness, not because of anything they're doing, but because they're allowing you to shine through them. Pray that we would be reminded of that, that we'd apply that to our lives, that we wouldn't be confused by the world around us, that we wouldn't have our thinking altered and affected by the world around us, that we wouldn't love and be seeking after the world around us, that we wouldn't put everything in front of you and put you last, but that we would desire to live life in close proximity to you, that we would want to include you in our lives, not exclude you, that we would want to have this mentality that without you we can do nothing, but that with you all things are possible. And that we can effectively carry out the mission, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And not because of how hard we're trying, but because of your strength working in us if we'll just get ourselves out of your way and let you have your way with us. Be yielded instruments in your hands. Pray that we would not have any too much focus on ourselves, but we would keep the focus on you and the relationship that you want us to live with you. Thank you for these reminders. In Jesus' name, amen.